0: hey everybody this is the season finale of the crew only podcast i can't believe we're already on the 13th episode of season one thank you to everybody who has listened so far i hope you guys enjoyed this last episode of season one i'm just so excited for you guys to hear it and i can't believe we're here so guys enjoy this episode and again this is the season finale we made it guys (laughs) welcome to the crew only podcast my name is jasmine porter a freelance television and film professional each episode i'll bring you a unique crew member from a different department to discuss their role in making a film we'll give you exclusive behind the scenes stories and advice on how you can get your start too thank you for joining us today and welcome to the crew life Hello, everybody. Right now, I'm here with Gabe Chavez, who is the best boy grip on a feature film here in Buffalo, New York. Gabe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank
1: you for having me. On this
0: Sunday. I know it's your day off, so thank you so much for coming in and chatting with me today. No problem. So, Gabe, tell us, how has it been for you leading up to this point? Like, how did you get to where you are right now?
1: Uh, As in, like, how did I start? Yeah,
0: how did did you start? And, like, take us through your your journey of
1: film. Well, my journey of film of quick intro would be that when I was when I was a kid, my parents were like very adamant that, you know, the new generation wasn't watching black and white movies, and mm-hmm. that they don't appreciate that kind of thing, so they were adamant that I started watching movies, like in a chronological order. Oh, wow. I didn't see my first color film until I was seven.
0: What? And like, I That's so I interesting. You know, I mean,
1: I would seen color TV, but I had never seen a color movie until I was seven, and it was The Lion King. I saw uh,
0: that oh, movie love the Lion, Lion. King!
1: <laughs> I saw the movie like twenty times, but like the the reason that I got into film was when I was six years old. My mom and dad showed me. I was in my silent era, so to mm-hmm. speak, and they were showing me all these silent movies. And I saw this movie called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and it was on PBS. And every Sunday they used to have these segments where they would show like an old movie, and there would be this guy in like a leather armchair, and he mm-hmm. would be like sitting in front of a fireplace and introduce the movie you talk about like the history of it and how it was the German expressionism movement and like I I didn't know what that was obviously but I was really excited to see what this was and I saw this movie if you haven't seen it, it's in 1924 no I've never heard of it but it's the reason why Tim Burton is who he is like everything that Tim Burton does the weird buildings and the weird creatures and everything like that that all comes from German expressionism like he is an extension of that Wow. If German Expressionism didn't exist, Tim Burton wouldn't exist.
0: Were your Were your parents like into film? Like, did they no, work they in just, film? No, they just
1: they like they. My dad is a journeyman electrician, and my mom was a stay at home mom until like I was fourteen, and then she mm-hmm. went back to teaching school. And uh, so she had she has a uh, science degree in biomedical like uh, lab work. Oh wow! So like neither one of them are connected to film. You know, nobody in my family has ever been connected to film. We don't have any actors. You know, I'm literally the first person yeah. to side to ever go into the film industry. But, like, I saw that movie, and I wanted to go into the film industry. I knew something clicked inside of me. I was like, I want to work on something like Did this you
0: know event. what you wanted to do, like, in yeah, the film industry? Yeah, I,
1: I always wanted to direct something. Okay. And, you know, to this date, like, I've directed 34 shorts. I've directed one oh, feature wow. film. wow. And like a lot of people don't know that about me. No, no, what's the name shot. what's the name?
0: You can't do that. You gotta like talk about it. What's the name of the feature film that you so directed? The
1: feature film that I directed is a movie called Beast of Burden. Okay. And like it was a low budget movie that my friends and I financed and we shot it over the course of four months. Mm-hmm. And so it was um, we've shot it all out of our own pocket and it was a it was a really interesting experience. It never got a release, so I'm disappointed in that. Yeah. My friends still bother me about that, about how much money we all sank into it, and we never mm-hmm. saw a release for it. And I was like, well, you know, why I don't did like you guys so not
0: much. get a release for it? Like-
1: I didn't like it. Like I, I wrote it, I directed it, I edited it, and I shot it. And so, like as I was so was you through, who yeah. decided that. Not- okay. So I was, as I was going through the editing process, like I was also producing it with my friend Trip and my friend Paul. Like we produced it together. And so when we got to the end, when I was getting through the editing process, I was just like, you know, I don't like where this is going. I don't want to reshoot this. This isn't me anymore. Mm I've been on like this whole string of films that I was doing. That was all like these very violent subject matters. And like, I didn't like that anymore. I wanted to get away from violence. And I wanted to examine something other than people that were violent characters. So I didn't want to do that anymore. And I really didn't like the movie so it just sat on my hard drive, and like to this day, I can still I can go home to New York City, and I could pull it up and show it to you. But like, I never.
0: Are you not going to? Re- <laughs> are you? Is it gonna be like in ten years, like Gabe releases this movie that. Maybe
1: he did? I mean maybe I, I there's a lot of things in it that I like, but like I just didn't like the subject matter. We took we took a book called The Most Dangerous Game that a lot of people are you know familiar with, but it's mm-hmm. about a, a rich man who owns an island who he gets bored like hunting normal games so he starts kidnapping people that are shipwrecked and hunting them instead.
0: Oh my gosh. And so
1: I took that and I kind of put it. It sounds interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I took that and I put it in I, I lived in New Mexico at the time and I put it in the northern mountains in New Mexico and like the summer before we shot it there was a giant fire in northern new mexico that burned seven hundred and fifty thousand acres of the forest wow so like when you went out there it was literally six inches of ash on the ground and all the trees were barren like the the biggest trees were still standing but they were burned into like black cinder columns but like it it had this enormous production value that i never could have afforded Mm -hmm. it was very post-apocalyptic and like dark and
0: so you shot it there yeah
1: and we shot it there and it was it was a really grueling and tough experience but like that was the feature that I made do you do
0: you ever feel like you kind of owe it to them to release it
1: you know like I I directed I directed a couple other shorts that did really well Mm -hmm. and so like I'd rather be known for that than known for this like, my last short film that I did is called More Than Words, and More Than Words got into 18 film festivals worldwide. Wow. It premiered at the Cannes Short Film Festival.
0: <laughs> Look at you, Gabe. Look at you. <laughs> yeah,
1: a lot, a lot of people don't know that about me, but it won It won three International Best Short Film Awards. It won three what? acting awards for the lead actress. And, like, it was really important to me when I was making that movie that I focused on a female. What is it called again? More Than Words. More Than Words. But it was really important to me that when I made that movie that I focused on a female protagonist and a woman of color. Yeah. Because it was like, you know, too many movies are like white, straight, male. They
0: definitely lack that.
1: (laughs) Uh, And that was kind of where my starting point was. But it was also because like I wanted to find my own identity as a a person of color, like Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker. And I wanted to kind of imprint that. So the movie is autobiographical. And like that's Mm -hmm. where I wrote from is I wrote from a very real like personal experience that happened to me. And that's the overall structure of the movie is, like, my real-life experience.
0: So where can people see that, like, who might not have obviously gone to the film festival? Well, it's
1: just, it's just finishing out. It's festival-run, so I'm looking for a distribution platform. Oh, this was platform. recent? Yeah. Oh, wow. And so I'm looking for a distribution platform right now in order to, like, release it. And, you know, I hate to say that it's just going to be Amazon, but, yeah. You know, We'll we'll see what happens.
0: I mean, but to be honest, that's, like, kind of the new thing. Who really watches traditional TV anymore? It's always, like, I'm on Netflix or I'm on YouTube or I'm on Amazon, you know? So it's, like, we still kind of have this idea, oh, it's not in theaters or it's not on TV, but everybody watches
1: Netflix, Amazon. I mean, I'm not denigrating that by any means. It's just I, I wanted to find a more... I like physical things, so, like, I, I still collect DVDs and Blu-rays. Don't and
0: let that hold like you that. back. Like, you gotta you gotta move forward, Gabe, like, because I don't even think we still have a DVD anymore. Yeah. It might come back around, though. I feel like everything always comes back. I should back. hope
1: so, because, like, I like that. I liked having a physical thing and, like, the design of the box and the feel yeah. of the case. And, like, I feel like digital distribution kind of took all that art mm-hmm. out of it, that it's just kind of like, oh, well, you click on it, and, like, and you, you, you kind of yeah. turn your brain off, and you binge watch. Them. But I started I started in this industry with that dream of wanting to be a filmmaker mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't really embrace it until two thousand seven.
0: And how old no, were you at the time that you started?
1: Uh, I was nineteen the okay. first time I was ever on a set. So like they there was this um, there was this small T V show that they made for the sci fi channel. It was a miniseries. It was called The Lost Room. And it was Pierre Krause and um Ja, uh Jason Pollock.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, not Jason Pollock. No, I'm gonna blank on his name. Last name's Pollock. Anyway, so it was this. It was this miniseries that they shot in actually in the town that I was born in in southern New Mexico. So like I saw that they were doing a casting call for extras. So I put my name in. I got a phone call. I showed up on set and like my first day on a union job. Like even as an extra, I was like, yeah, you know, I I wanted to be behind the camera. I never wanted to be in front of the camera. Yeah. So, like, even being an extra, like, crossing the lens, I didn't want to do that. I was, like, I felt very nervous about it. like, I, I want to like be behind. Experience. I wanted to be behind the camera, and I wanted to create something. So, like, that was my first experience on set. And then uh, 2006, 2007, I was, like, trying to kick it off by, like, doing my own little things. And it was always just, like, camera tests, like one little scene of something. Mm-hmm. But I never could put, like, an entire idea together. And it wasn't until two thousand eight that I really put my first short film together and I got my first union job. Like my first union job, like
0: as um, what? What was your well, first Well,
1: I came in as a day player on like a movie that they shot in New Mexico in Albuquerque. And
0: like as just a PA or?
1: No, as a grip.
0: Okay. So, so you started like, off right as
1: I've always been a grip. Okay, I never I did I did PA <laughs> one day okay. in my life. In and what and, film like, was that? It's not even worth mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> but it was I, I came in and you know like a friend of mine was a PA and so he got me on mm-hmm. and I, I lasted half a day and I quit. Well, I was are like, you I'm kidding? not going to do this. I hate this. I was like, I and it, it sort of shaped my opinion on PAs and that like they have a very hard job and they never get thanked for it. Mm-hmm. And that's really shaped who I was on set after that. Like I was always grateful the PAs. I always learned their names. I always talk to them because yeah. I'm like these are the people that never get the thanks. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's it's wrong the way that we treat PAs in a lot of ways. Like, the amount of hours that they work, the amount of time that they put in, you know, and nobody knows who they are, and they're treated like expendables, and it sucks. Like, it it shouldn't be that way. PAs are an invaluable part of the film crew, but they're looked at, like, as a lesser person simply yeah. because they're not union, and, like, there was no, like, skills, quote-unquote, involved in them, like, coming in. They were just doing a lock-up, or they were just, yeah. like, <laughs> escorting people. But... They have a very valuable job that like nobody gives them the just due that they deserve mm-hmm. so and you know i think that
0: is that why you quit that day you just I quit felt that like- day
1: because it's just like i feel like i'm being used i have no interest in this mm-hmm. like i want something that's more rewarding and something that feels more like uh re- not just rewarding but also just appreciated. Uh, yeah appreciated. i guess and yeah, you know, I, I i really didn't feel appreciated as a pa so i quit And then uh, a couple (laughs) weeks later, I, you know, I I was looking into how to get into the union in order to do like a union job. Because I knew if I was going to get any kind of money, I needed to work as a union position. So I did everything that I could. I contacted the, the union rep. I contacted the business agent. And like I started asking them questions. And luckily enough, like... The system in Albuquerque is small enough that like they were willing to talk to me about it rather than just hanging up the phone. But um, they were nice enough in order to talk to me, and I met this union guy who was a grip, and he talked to me about. it. His name was Bruce Weatherby, and Bruce Weatherby like really introduced me to like he didn't he never got me my first job, but he introduced me to the process of how okay. to get into the union and how. Which, if you don't
0: mind, what is that process like? So
1: back in Albuquerque, it's a little bit different than it is in New York or LA, but like in Albuquerque, it's basically. That you have to work, and this is this is called the Taft Hartley clause, mm-hmm. which is across the entirety of the IATSE unions in New York, or in America, and it's in SAG. It was actually introduced to like open up enrollment in unions, so that way it wasn't so uh, nepotistic or yeah. And so like um, the Taft Hartley clause that New Mexico rides on is basically that if you're covered on a union job in a union craft for 30 days or more, they have to offer you membership into the union. Mm. And so like that's where it came in is that I had to day play and I had to collect a certain number of days in order for them to invite me to apply. But when they invited me to apply the first time, I didn't apply. Because I was like, I'm not I'm not ready to be a union yeah. person. Like, I don't know enough. I need to learn more. Mm-hmm. And so, like, as my time in New Mexico moved on, I, like, I grew and grew and grew until I figured out how to do it. Yeah. And then I was finally comfortable enough in order to try like, it. Like, all
0: right, I feel ready yeah. now.
1: So, like, uh, when I finally became a union employee, like, I started working more and more and more. And, like, a lot of people... Don't they look at New Mexico and they're like, oh, I don't really know what's out there. You know, aren't you guys just a flat desert in the middle of nowhere? And
0: they, like, was Breaking Bad out there? Yeah,
1: Breaking Bad was out there. So, like, it's, it. you know, it wasn't just, like, Breaking Bad. Everybody's like, oh, you had one show. And I'm like, no, Albuquerque is the film industry's dirty little secret. Like, if I showed you the list of movies that have been shot there, I wouldn't TV believe shows, it. you wouldn't believe it. Like, yeah. it's absolutely insane how much work comes there. And even if it's for, like, a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there, mm-hmm. like... It's, you know, every year there's 10 or 15 union projects that are oh, shot wow. in New Mexico. And so it's, it's like, it's enough that it like keeps everybody employed because we are a smaller local, yeah. we are a smaller film business, but it's not like LA where there's not work coming in and there's thousands of people sitting around.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's not as competitive in that way.
0: So what is, as Best Boy Grip, what is that? What does that mean? Like, what are your responsibilities? Like, so what are you doing on set? A
1: best Boy Grip... Sometimes they call them... In, in the UK, they call... Or in the UK film industry, they call them the second grip. Okay. And, like, it's literally... If you think of the key grip as your boss mm-hmm. I'm or the president of the grip company, like <laughs> I am the vice president. Okay. And so like what I do is basically I'm the point of contact for the entire grip department. Mm. So anybody that wants to talk to the grips, they talk to me. They come through you. Yeah. So like if any other department needs something, you know, they talk to me or they talk to Chris and you know, they ask for that. But like what my job entails mostly is logistics, it's logistics, it's like making sure that there's enough manpower for the scene for the day meaning if we have enough people in order to do the scene for the day and you know if there's something involved like there's a bunch of moves throughout the day like we have to push down the street or we have mm-hmm. to pack the truck and move locations like i need to make sure that i have extra people that day if there's A lot of night work you know night work's a little more dangerous and more involved so you have more people in order to make sure it's you know it runs smoother like my job involves manpower special order special order equipment type stuff so if there's some dolly or crane that needs to be used for a specific day i have to like coordinate the logistics with the production accountant and the production uh coordinator in order to figure out how to get it where to get it when it needs to be there when it needs to leave stuff like that so Chris always says that my my boss Chris Beatty he always says that it's it, his job is easy. All he has to do is point. He's <laughs> like I want that there. I want this over here. I want to do this, and like I'm responsible for making, making it sure happen. it get done. And making sure that Chris never has to think about the details of how that's gonna get done. It just happens.
0: So the the term best boy grip where did where did that come from? Best like boy, why isn't it just second <laughs> second grip?
1: Best boy actually came out of uh, World War II. Like in World War Two, when a lot of people. A lot of the men came home and like the film industry was really exploding in the nineteen forties in LA mm-hmm. because Warner Brothers was like really upping their non studio game and like there was a lot of studios that were looking for people and expanding their control over the market. The Best Boy term came from simply World War Two, is that like when they hired somebody to do a particular thing, they would be who's your best boy?
0: Uh. And
1: meaning (laughs) that who's the best person that you know that can help you run this. Like be your code co you know conspirator so to speak. And that's where it came out of, and it. it just sort of stuck. It's like interesting.
0: Who's your best? boy? like when you say it like that, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But when I'm you not... see
1: it in the credits, it doesn't make any sense. You're like, it's best, like boy. What's what? best boy. Best I mean. boy. Yeah.
0: Like, what is that?
1: So, but that's literally where it came from. Is it came from this idea that like, who's your best boy that you work with? Yeah. And then you'd hire that person as to be like your second.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. So, take us through the whole grip department. We understand what your responsibility is, but the grip department in the whole, what are they responsible for in a set?
1: The grip department is kind of, it's one of those departments that people don't really know what they do. Mm -hmm. And if I had to, like, list you everything that we do, it would be an exhaustive list. But, like, the the best way... It was a little
0: tiny list. Well, the best (laughs) thing that I can
1: say that I really enjoyed about this explanation is I saw an explanation the other day that somebody asked, like, oh, what does a grip do? And this grip answered back to this person in production. Well, when I stop doing it, you'll know. And it's, it's, we kind of support all the departments, but our, the main thing that we do that is like the most well-known is that there's a saying that like uh, electrics throw light, grips cut it. So like uh, an electric will put up a lamp, shoot it through a window, and it's supposed to be, you know, night interior. And so it's our job as the grip department to shape the light and cut the light and diffuse the light in such a way that it looks natural that it okay. doesn't look like a light coming through a window. If our job is done right you won't notice what we're doing And so in, in addition to that we move cameras so like anything that has to do with a dolly move or a steady cam or a crane move or anything like that and there's an entire other side of it um, that's rigging and that's like larger setups where you you know you have to build some giant object above somebody's head to control the light there's there's been a couple times in my career where you had to build like you know 40 by 40 or 50 by 50 foot like diffusion that hangs on truss that hangs from a crane up above people's heads <laughs> yeah. so that way it controls the sun as it's you know you know moving throughout the yeah. sky that way when you look at the image the the sunlight doesn't change sides between the hours that it takes to shoot a scene
0: Interesting So
1: that's a big part of the grip department is the rigging department and the shooting department and then in New York there's a whole thing about the construction department so like the construction grips build the set and you know they build whatever they need in order to hang set walls mm-hmm. and stuff like that over people's heads. But that's specific to New York, like the West Coast doesn't do yeah. that. We have day laborers. It's a non-union job that does that. Even though they do the exact same thing, it's not lumped in with the group crew.
0: So once you're on set, what are the departments that you're like, what is that dynamic like with all the other departments? Like, who are you involved with?
1: My point of my biggest point of contact is obviously the key grip. And then the cinematographer Mm -hmm. and the production coordinator. They're like the three people that I speak to the most. Okay. Is that this, you know, like I I go on a tech scout with the key grip and we look at all the locations for the movie or the TV show or the episode that we're working on. And then we talk to the cinematographer about what he wants to do for those scenes. And based on his responses in our tech scout, we figure out what special equipment we need, what we're going to do. You know if there's a wall that needs to be built a fake wall or whatever then we talk to the art director about that about getting that made so a lot of it is just the logistics of literally what's in front of the camera mm-hmm. so that's something that that's a big thing that like grips do is that every it's it's I hesitate to use the French term mise-en-scene, but, like, we coordinate a lot of things that allow mise-en-scene to happen. So, like, we talk to the art director, like, oh, you know, there's this fake wall here, but the fake wall needs to move in order for us to do this camera position that Mm. the DP wants to do. Or we need to do a cutout in the wall in order to look this way. On the last job that Chris and I did, we had this interesting... Problem that we were looking into a mirrored wall, and we didn't like we were thinking about how we were going to hide the dolly and hide everybody that's standing by the dolly when we were looking into this mirrored wall. So it's quite literally that we had to get a fake wall built that was made out of the same mirrors that were on the wall mm-hmm. that we were looking into. And then, like, as we were shooting through that, we could cut a hole just for the lens so that way we could see what the actor is doing and do the scene, but we wouldn't see the camera when we look into the wall. Wow. So.
0: That's so interesting. So are you guys also working with the electric department as well? Like, yeah. Do you guys we, go kind of hand in
1: hand? We go hand in hand. There's a... With the advent of digital, there's this whole... Undercurrent of younger gaffers that believe that the grip department works for them so they'll Mm. they'll try to order the gaffer will try to order the key grip around why do they think that? because there's this misnomer in digital that the most important thing is the camera okay and so like they everything has to do with the image that the camera is creating and so like they don't really care about you know delineations between labor and it's 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 a very specific problem that's happening lately is that gaffers some gaffers believe that the grip department works for them so they'll like try to order the key grip around it's like no what happens is that the gaffer and the key grip stand next to the DP, and the DP says what he wants, and then based on your union descriptions of what your job is, yeah. you delineate the labor in order to create whatever it is that he's wanting.
0: So what? Because I know people listen. It's like, well, what is a gaffer? Like, what well, what is what is a gaffer? Explain. A
1: gaffer like? is also called the chief lighting technician. In a lot of there's a whole move actually right now to get away from calling them a gaffer, to mm-hmm. call them a chief lighting technician. But that's quite literally a job. Is that they. Look at it and they're like, Oh, you know what, there there needs to be more light coming through this window and you know, like they coordinate with the grips on how they're gonna do that. We need to put this light way up here, how are we gonna do that? Ask the grips, the grips, you know, get a crane or whatever they need in order to put the light through the window. Okay so that's that's what the gaffer does is the gaffer looks at the light and how the light is falling on the image yeah. and like where to put more lights so is speak.
0: there ever because you kind of just talked about a little issue that you guys have between are there ever other issues that like the grip and electric department kind of go through
1: no the grip uh 99 of the time the grip and electric department get along really well okay. because we work so closely with each mm-hmm. other and in such proximity to each other that we get along i've there's a few electricians that I've met along the years that <laughs> yeah. I don't like, but. That's more that's like more, a personal. It's a personality yeah. thing. But, like, in terms of the delineation of labor, like, we're so closely in tune with each other that a lot of people if they don't work around us they don't know the differentiation between Mm. the two of us okay i can kind of
0: see that because it's like for them to kind of or for you to do their job they have to do theirs and it's kind of like interchangeable
1: exactly in order in order for us to do something we need to wait on them in order to do something and vice versa so it's very important that the best boy grip and the best boy electric know what's happening and how to avoid any problems of us standing around waiting for the other person to do their job.
0: Yeah. So, so a little quick story, I was on a set the other night and when you mentioned like something with a sliding door, it just made me think. Chris Beattie, um it was a scene that they were doing like with the door and i remember like chris laying down when they were shooting making sure that the door was sliding so i guess he was like pushing or pulling it so it's interesting that you <laughs> mentioned that because it's like they kind of have to, you have to improvise and yeah. figure out well, different things to do
1: there's one big thing about the grip department that a lot of people need to know is that like ultimately the key grip is the person that's responsible for safety on set mm-hmm. so you'll see as you get more and more into the industry you'll see that like if a props person has a fake gun the first person that they go to is they go to the key grip and they make sure that the key grip knows that the gun is unloaded Mm. and that there's no blank in there and that the chamber is clear and then they show the first ad okay but the key grip is also responsible and the grip department is responsible for knowing about safety issues that are on set and how to avoid anything like that like the other day Mm -hmm. we shot in the forest and like There was an 18-foot cliff that we had to put a bunch of people on top of in order to work the scene from above, but like, obviously a big problem with that is that we're in the woods, it's damp, there's a lot of loose material, so the the grip department has to evaluate what we need to bring in in order to make it a safer experience. Mm -hmm. So, like, during that time period, in the cliffs, there's all these, like, cracks that just run through the cliffs, the cliffs that are three or four feet deep. And it's great to break somebody's ankle. You know, somebody's walking along, not paying attention to what they're doing. Yeah. They Their foot goes into the crack and they crack their ankle or whatever. So, part of what we did before, I don't even know if anybody even knew that we did this, but we just took um, these giant plastic mats called track mats. And we had to order those special in order to cover those cracks. Oh, wow. To make it safe for... The entire company of people the entire film crew to work there and you know a lot of people probably didn't even notice, notice that we did that and wow. so it's stuff like that like we see problems before they develop and safety issues before they're there and we have to address those first before we can talk about anything when it comes to lighting or camera movement
0: yeah see i would never even think to say okay that's a grip yeah like that's their job to make I mean, sure
1: last year on wolf boy we had an entire conversation about how they wanted to do a scene where the two kids were gonna be up on the side of this uh, old grain silo, and they were gonna run up the side of this um, this old staircase that's on the side of the grain silo. But it was me and the stunt coordinator and the key grip. We went out there separately in order to look at that, and we got up on the gra- or on the on the staircase and we looked at it for problems. And we had to inspect it for structural damage, mm-hmm. like welding problems, missing railings, stuff like that. And then, once we had our evaluation on whether it was safe or not, we asked for a mechanical engineer to be brought in in order to evaluate it a second time and yeah. give a professional opinion about what needs to be done in order to meet the safety expectations that we were talking about with the stunt coordinator. But, wow. like, we did that unbeknownst, I'm sure, to a lot of people. Yeah. That's what we did. And then, by the time that it got fixed and we actually had the scene, you know, then the actors could safely get on it. Wow. But, I mean, that was something that, you know, nobody is going to remember and nobody's yeah. going to realize that we did that. And you're not going to see it in the film, obviously. Yeah. You know? I mean, oh, that looks like a brand new staircase. <laughs> so it's stuff like that that the grip department does mm-hmm. that if I stopped doing my job, you would know immediately. Yeah.
0: What's but you can't pinpoint, like, oh, yeah, they did that. Yeah. Wow. That... Oh,
1: specifically the grips did not yeah know? so it's it's stuff like that that you know a lot of people don't really know what grips do and i i stopped explaining what i do years ago i started mm-hmm. just saying i was a film technician why because it's such a it's such an expansive job mm-hmm. that in order for me to really give you an idea of it like it's a long list of things that yeah yeah
0: People wouldn't really be able to understand it. Yeah, I think it.
1: people would just kind of blank out. out they're of like, work. okay. After like
0: a couple minutes, they're like, okay. Like he's yeah, just, I mean, just I, talking now.
1: I've known my wife for nine years, and like she still doesn't really know what I do yeah. for a
0: living. So. <laughs> She's like, oh, I, I know my husband works on. She the just movies. knows
1: that I, you know, I do a lot of things that have to be safe. Yeah. And so she worries about that. That you know, I'm up on high buildings or high ledges, and she worries because it could be dangerous like for yeah. you too. Yeah. It's uh, the grip department is a dangerous job. We don't do our job properly somebody could get killed Mm -hmm. and it happens all the time unfortunately in this industry somebody isn't paying attention with stunt coordinator in the grips and someone gets killed you know you read about that two or three times a year somebody making a mistake and falling and it it is a big responsibility and it is a big problem in this industry but it's you know it's getting better because of you know unfortunately like trial and error you know Mm -hmm. people are learning what's going on out there and like specific situations require a lot more money in order to do it but it's ultimately the safest way of doing it
0: so let's talk about your your day on set like what's a typical day for you like you come on you have your your crew call your call time kind of take us through a day of what gabe is doing until it's time for him to go home (laughs)
1: uh the first thing is that i always show up 45 30 30 to 45 minutes early Mm -hmm. um and then pretty much since i get out of my car is a discussion of logistics And what's gonna happen throughout the day and like special equipment that we might need where what we're doing Mm -hmm. stuff like that and Sort of like an order from all the equipment that comes from the truck like what we need that's special for that day And like I make sure all that stuff when we get in at our call time You know that all that stuff comes off the truck and gets pushed in the location and that it's in a safe space in an area that we're not gonna look at because the biggest annoyance to me as a grip is having to move equipment more than once okay so like obviously like you know there's two directions every time they shoot a scene mm-hmm. so I know that I'm gonna have to move the equipment once yeah. at least <laughs> but if you're telling me that I have to move it three or four times throughout the day then you and I have a problem because <laughs> it's like you aren't telling me exactly yeah. what you're seeing and where it's safe for me to stage equipment So my job, you know, when I first get in is just making sure that everybody gets their equipment pulled off and what they need and that it's on set and it's done in a timely manner before they start needing it. Uh, Make sure that my guys show up on time, that I have enough people, (laughs) and once they get in, you know, they take over a majority of the work while I figure out logistics for the next day. Mm -hmm. My job is very interesting in that when I work with Chris and ever since I've worked as a best boy, which has been... A while now is that I don't like sitting in the truck. A lot of the best thing about being a best boy is, is that if you do your job correctly, you can literally sit in the truck oh, and wow. wait because everything that's logistical it and should be labor handled. related is already handled. And so you can just sit down and wait for the next day and make yeah. sure that the next day's problems are solved before they come up.
0: But you don't like to do that
1: i don't like sitting in the truck so i'm always on set i'm always talking to someone i'm always trying to figure out what the next move is mm-hmm. so that way what we're doing and what how we can do it better and how we can do it quicker so like you'll see me a lot on set even though, yeah like, i always see you yeah i always
0: see you on set
1: and you know like I, I just like working i like you know i like the whole process i didn't it. come I here like,
0: to sit in the truck all day
1: yeah <laughs> i mean i've done that a couple of times yeah. i was really tired but you know we all
0: have those days right
1: but you know ultimately I'm, I'm different in that way is like most best boys is that I get nervous when I'm not doing something and I'm, I'm always working mm-hmm. so and then that's a whole other thing about my job is maintaining the equipment is knowing what's damaged and what needs to be okay. fixed and I have to fix because it's not or cheap to order no it's not cheap it's <laughs> expensive you know a, a common uh, grip truck that's you know 40 feet long is going to cost you anywhere from five hundred thousand to a million dollars because of all the equipment that yeah. yeah. So, like, it's it's a big investment, and, like, the best boy is responsible for making sure that the stuff is taken care of and that it's not beat up because it's a safety issue. Yeah. If, a, if a stand isn't taken care of and it's got a rusted part, it could snap. And there could mm. be, you know, 50 pounds hanging over somebody's head that's now crashing down into the set. You know, and so, now
0: somebody is and now hurt, someone's or, hurt
1: de- or dead. So.
0: <laughs> it's, like, so intense, like, when you, like, say it like that, I'm like, oh, my God, this is, like you kind of like you know you, it feels like you kind of have like a lot of pressure going on because you have yeah, to make it's, sure that everybody and, and it's is
1: extremely detail oriented and that's something that you know it stresses out a lot of people so yeah. being a best boy isn't for everybody and being a key grip isn't for everybody i mean there's there's the life expectancy for everyone on set the two people with the lowest life expectancy are the first ad and then the key grip. i've
0: heard that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that about the
1: because it's so stressful. Yeah, because they have to worry about everything. Like the first AD literally needs to know every single day who is <laughs> doing what, what's going where and who needs to do what and like all of that in their head at the ex- all hours of the day. day. And like that's stressful and then the key grip is stressed out because he has everybody else's concerns at mm-hmm. order, you know, he needs to know what the art department needs for that day and, like, make sure that the best boy, I mean, he shouldn't actually have to do this, but it's on his mind yeah. is that if the best boy is handling that and, like, you know, what the safety concerns are for that day, what the logistical problems for that day. And on top of all that, like, they still need to worry about whether they're going to get paid and, like, make sure they're getting paid the same amount, or the, the amount that they need to. Yeah. And that everybody's following, like, safety rules and OSHA rules and guidelines and stuff like that. And that's that's a stressful job. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't like keying, even though I've done it quite a few times. I what would like you
0: rather it. be doing?
1: I My favorite job in the union is I love rigging. Okay. Because rigging, I'm on a normal schedule, You know, you come in at 6 or 7 in the morning and you leave by 4 or 5 in the afternoon. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, you you have a life. You get, you know, your life after it and... Yeah, you know, like, yeah, and before like it's a hard job. It's a lot harder than mm-hmm. shooting. You have to build massive things all the time. You know, truss grids, all sorts of stuff that you're building. That's what 70. are those
0: things? Because a lot of people might not know. Yeah, what that is. so
1: truss is sort of what you see hanging over a concert stage. It's the okay. square metallic mm-hmm. grid that gets put together, and so like that that stuff is heavy, and you know, it's it supports a lot of weight. So that's a whole another side of being a grip is knowing your math about how much you can safely load something and what yeah. a working load limit is on a particular clamp that you're using. So that way you're not overloading it for what it's designed for. And again, you know, like a grid, which is like it's black metallic pipe that hangs over a set in the eight by eight squares. And it's crisscrossed like a grid in a common studio could weigh 15,000 pounds and you gotta hang it over someone's head and you know that's something that you need to know what you're doing and what they're doing it
0: so what, like, what kind of experience do you have to have? Like, obviously you have to have experience, but, like, how do you... Because it's not like you can go to school for this. Right. So, like, how do you go about getting experience to even take on this kind of job?
1: Grips, grips are an interesting case because there is no schooling for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like film school where you go and you learn to direct something. Yeah. Like, it's it's a very specific job. It's very much like a construction-style job mm-hmm. and that you need to, you know, evaluate, you know, safety things and stuff like that, but... You really... The unfortunate thing about being a grip is is that you need to learn on the job. Okay. Like, there's really no other way of learning how to do this unless you do it. Yeah. You just kind of so,
0: learn along the way.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's helpful to hook up with people that know what they're doing. And, like, they can teach you the right way. And that's sort of something that... um is very specific to this industry is like learning the right way from the right people
0: yeah because you Cause can you learn get, it but from wrong yeah. the wrong <laughs> you people get a,
1: you can get in a bad habit yeah. and then when somebody sees it that knows what they're doing and knows the problems with what's going on like and there, there's a whole thing about like continual training on this job is that i was telling someone the other day that was brand new to the grip world i was just like you know the difference between a good grip and a bad grip is finesse like mm. you, I can teach anybody how to do this job, but like, if you're like a bull in a China shop, every time you pull something out of the truck and you move with like, you know, wanton flailing arms or whatever, yeah. like <laughs> you're going to get somebody hurt. And yeah. like, that's something that you need to know how to do. And that's, that's sort of all just related to muscle memory and doing it over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And that's the difference between a really good grip and like a great grip is just their finesse. and Yeah there's an you know there's a whole thing about if you believe that you know everything about your industry like you're gonna make a mistake yeah cause because you don't like you're always learning you're all, something new you always every day. have to learn you always have to be open to learning and that you may not know everything and that you may something that you may have been doing for years may not be the safest way of doing it and that you need to learn how to do it the new way mm-hmm. that is safer but you need to be open to that otherwise you're like a you become, like, a bitter person. You're, like, you're very, you know standoffish toward knowledge and stuff like that, and it's just because of your pride, and that's yeah. something that you can't have.
0: So when it comes to the hiring process, how do you get hired for the job? Are you responsible for hiring the other people? Yeah,
1: so my my main way of getting a job is that I know a lot of key grips. Okay, and, and the, so like key grip the key, is key grip is responsible for hiring you? Yeah, the key grip hires me directly, but he gives my name to the unit production manager, mm-hmm. the unit production manager calls me in order to cut a deal with, okay. like, you know, if I have any equipment on the truck that I want to rent special or anything like that, if he needs the special equipment as per what the key grip says or as per what the tech or the tech scout determines, it's so like that determines my rate that he has to pay me. And then based on our negotiations, like he agrees to hire me or he tells the key grip, oh, you know, like Gabe's too expensive or whatever and then you know the key grip has to find someone else that'll work for a lesser rate
0: okay and then what about for the people underneath you like do you hire them or does that come from the The, key as well usually
1: the key grip hires the best boy and the a dolly grip okay because like the the key grip likes have knowing what the a dolly operator is capable of Mm -hmm. and he puts his like reputation on the line based on his best boy and his a dolly grip Because, like, the A-Dolly grip is going to determine how well the camera moves and how happy the cinematographer is. Okay. And so, like, that's obviously a a (laughs) reputation-based thing. And, like, my reputation is a big thing for the key grip, too, because I am the point of contact for him. So, Mm -hmm. like, if I'm not a very personable person or I'm very negative or, like, I'm vulgar or whatever, like... He's less inclined to hire me Mm -hmm. because of that, because I need to be able to make... Who wants to work
0: with, like... People who, who just have terrible attitudes and people who are just unpleasant to work with. Yeah,
1: and you know, it's, it's you know, every day that I work, you know, on a movie, I'm talking to thir- anywhere from 30 to 50 people a day. And wow. I need to remember their names and I need to remember, like, have some sort of a rapport with them. Yeah. And all of this needs to happen in a job that's anywhere from six weeks long to nine months long. Yeah. You know? And that's the thing, is that my It can be really quick. Yeah, my personality and my interactions with those people is a huge thing that the key grip has to consider when hiring me, is that am I the kind of guy that I can you know, get along with these people. Mm-hmm. And like because that's important. He needs to look good and he also needs to get what he needs. Yeah. And if I have a very negative attitude, it would be It's gonna make it more difficult. It's gonna make it more difficult. The production coordinator may not want to answer my phone call because they're like, oh, they here we don't go. Like me. Gabe's
0: <laughs> gonna have another attitude like or I don't want drama or yeah. whatever
1: and that's that's the whole thing is that, you know, that's that's where I get my that's why I get my jobs. Is that you know there's a lot of groups that are better than me.
0: Yeah. But
1: the reason that I work is because of my attitude. I can say that every I'm interaction I had
0: with you you've always been pleasant
1: yeah and it's it's not just being fake pleasant yeah. like you I believe that being a good grip has a lot to do with being an actual genuine person mm-hmm. it's not trying to be fake and like not trying to scam people out of something or you know lie to someone to get what you want and that that you know that unfortunately happens in this industry and there's people that have like really negative reputations because of that
0: yeah
1: but
0: so really quickly can you take us through your department yeah. And just list, like, what everybody's role is and kind of what they're responsible for doing.
1: Yeah, the uh, the average grip crew is usually key plus five people. Okay. So, like, it's anywhere from a total of six to nine people every day working on the mm-hmm. grip crew. And that's not including the riggers, which is a whole other thing. But, um, you know, every day those people are on set throughout the course of the production. And so the, the delineation of labor is, like... The key grip is the point of contact with the cinematographer. The cinematographer talks directly to the key grip about what he wants done. The key grip can delegate to me to get certain things done. And then, you know, he delegates directly to the A camera dolly as well because they're on set all the time. So they're on set all the time. They talk to each other, you know, based on movement of the camera and stuff like that. And then delineation of labor from there is that they talk to me. The two guys talk to me as well as the cinematographer and then I talk to everybody else. Mm. So in terms of like on set dynamics, the key grip, the A dolly, B dolly, if there's a B camera, and then there's usually two or three thirds past that, which are just, they're the technicians that help okay. actually do everything. So they don't get enough credit either. There's yeah. third grips, third grips and end up, you know, it's not a glamorous job necessarily, but like what it's are a, they doing they're setting flags they're you know helping what are flags flags are little pieces of cloth or diffusion that are of specific pre-made sizes on metal frames okay so they're put directly in front of the light or you know bouncing off mm-hmm. of the light in order to create the image and look that the cinematographer wants so
0: so really quick what would be now besides aside from somebody dying or getting hurt what would be a difficult day for you
1: a difficult day for me is always when they say that it's day for night and we don't have a rigging crew that's Mm. a difficult day for me because it means that i have to black out all the windows and if they're in a really large building like this and there's a lot of windows (laughs) that's a lot it's a lot of work and you have to do that before they start moving and before the company needs it you know because wow. like you can't come into a location the windows are wide open and everybody's like well i thought it was supposed to be night in here. Yeah. And it's like oh you know what you guys need to wait for an hour in order for us to get it done
0: it needs to be done before it needs
1: to be done before so a difficult day for me is if there's no rigging crew and we have a big day for night scene with a lot of windows it means that my day is going to be a lot longer because you
0: have, have to, to come in walking. like hours earlier yeah, right have to
1: come in hours earlier with extra people in order to get it done and it's not like I, you know, I'm not. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. It's just it's a more difficult job because of that. But that's all logistics. Like mm-hmm. if I had the conversation properly with the DP and the unit production Ahead of time. manager, I can have you know I can split off and I can do it with three other guys as a rigging mm-hmm. group. You know, and like my day would be separate from what the shooters are doing. Okay. But uh, day for night, big blackouts are always a challenge. Um, A lot of company moves are a challenge. Yeah, and then I
0: think that's a challenge for everybody. Yeah,
1: because you just you you unpack the truck, you do what you need to do, then you load the truck, and then you move, and then you have to unpack the truck and do it again. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's a lot. It's a lot, and then if you're moving around a lot, you can you know if you have inexperienced grips on the crew, they can forget that they put a clamp up the ceiling, and then you're like, well, you know, we We need that and get that clamp. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you always have extras. (laughs) Yeah. But, but the, still, the at the end of the day, you need is, it. is that it's expensive. And that's, you know, the whole thing about my job, too, is that I have to know what's on the truck and the inventory that's there. So that way I know when something's lost Missing. or something's stolen or something's broken and mm. I've been ordering one. So, you know, that's difficult when you have a lot of company moves. And then another difficult day would be if it's a very, like dangerous location, if we're shooting in a place with crumbling walls or, you know, like a, a rusty yeah. ceiling or like an old factory where there's a lot of rusty corners for people staying their elbows on in the middle of the night, like those are difficult days for me because those days are just, you have to have more safety concerns and you have yeah. to talk to people about, you Because you just
0: have a higher chance of people getting hurt. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, I mean, the more people that are on set, the more personalities, the more eyeballs and hands touching something, and so you know there's room for human error in there and that those are the difficult days when it's like that so
0: are you okay with kind of for people who might kind of want to get into the industry generally of what like a union rate is typically for some like a best
1: boy yeah um the 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 union scale is like it's it's basically broken down amongst three different tiers Mm -hmm. and the majors so like there's a tier zero which is like the ultimate low budget like 1.5 million movie. yeah which people
0: like that's a lot of money but for a film you're like for a film it's nothing
1: (laughs) and then there's um you know the tier ones which go up to basically around like nine or ten million Mm dollars and then there's the tier twos that start after that and they go up to you know to 25 million i think and then there's the tier threes, which are anywhere between 25 and 50 million. And usually, when you get into like the $50 million, $40, $50 million range, then you're talking about majors. Majors. Like, then you're in the majors contracts, and everything above that is majors. So, like, each contract and each, um, I guess, bracket of budget determines your wage. So, like, I don't like talking about tier zero jobs because I think that tier zero jobs shouldn't exist.
0: Yeah. Because they're I like, oh, what are not, they getting
1: paid? I think if you're not fully funded, that they shouldn't back you with the union labor. Yeah. Like, union labor by definition of being union you're a skilled technician that has a trade union representing your skills Mm -hmm. so like if you don't have enough money to pay you don't you don't talk to a plumber and be like oh i don't have enough money to pay you for your skill yeah will you take this instead they're like no do that like i i think that that's something that needs to change in this industry is that if you're not fully funded in order to pay the rate scale that they require you don't get the union labor Mm -hmm. that's it but that's my own personal opinion But if you're working on a tier 1 movie The average rate that you're going to get paid Is about 20 to $25 an hour as a yeah. best boy That's for straight time up to 8 hours And then you get time and a half after that And then double time after a certain number of hours on set And then for your tier 2 movies You're earning about $30 an hour Anywhere from 30 to $35 an hour And then majors You're earning $40 plus dollars yeah. an hour for your straight time And then
0: there's like a bunch of things that come with that as well. there's
1: perks that come with that too. If you're in a second season show, like there's usually a bump, you know, for everybody on the crew, you're earning a couple dollars more an Mm -hmm. hour um certain contracts in the majors have prevailing rate meal penalties which mean that if they don't feed you every six hours like you get paid for every 30 minutes that they don't pay you or they don't feed you
0: which adds up (laughs) well if
1: you're if you're in a prevailing rate it like it really adds up because Mm -hmm. it could mean you know an extra five or six hundred dollars a day that you're getting simply because they're not feeding you on time
0: (laughs) yeah
1: which is fine (laughs) you know i don't necessarily it's not fine
0: for production me. but for like the person you're like oh well i totally i'm happy with this paycheck yeah,
1: i'm like you know i you know some days it irritates me where i'm just like just cut and feed me like yeah. i'm hungry this is a hard day it's hot outside you know like yeah but you know most times when it comes to meal penalties i'm like i'm fine you know i'm an hourly employee like keep rolling i don't yeah. care this is money coming out of your pocket <laughs> and going into mine you yeah know? So it's it's the ones where they're like so well managed that they never give you a meal penalty because they're always cutting on time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you love it
0: or are you like I
1: kind of love it in the (laughs) sense that like I know that my meal is coming and like there's some sort of structure Mm -hmm. to that. But at the same time, it's like, well, I know that I'm not going to get any perks.
0: (laughs) No extra money. No
1: extra money. And uh, that that can be kind of disappointing. But... You're like,
0: ah, they feed me, but I'm yeah. not going to get any extra money today.
1: Yeah, you know, it occurred to me just now that, like, I never answered your question on how to become a grip. Yeah. So, like... <laughs> we we're.
0: I'm going to let you finish, and then we we're going to go, like, how do you become a grip? But
1: Yeah, so, like, uh, I, I got into gripping purely by chance. Okay. Like, it was something that I saw somebody doing, and, like, a friend of mine did it. Mm-hmm. So I asked them how to get into it. And so... I I think that unions are still really, like, standoffish in the way that they hire people. And I think that that's something that needs to change because there is a lot of work out there. Yeah, Like, you know, people, there's always going to be... The film industry is always going to be around because people need to entertain themselves. Yeah, people want to watch movies. Yeah, so and TV shows, you know. So like I, I think that the labor is only going to increase, especially during times of difficulty, economic difficulty, or political difficulty. The actual amount of money that goes into Hollywood and people going to see movies goes yeah. up, because people want an escape from whatever. Yeah, like yeah, like when things when times are rough, you're like.
0: I need to get away from so that.
1: So that means that there's going to be more movies, more people working. And I I, I think that when it comes to getting a job as a grip, if you wanted to get into this industry as a group it's really contact somebody yeah, that you know that you know find somebody that knows somebody and if you don't know anybody that works in the film industry, don't be afraid to pick up the phone
0: yeah i was gonna the, say like yeah. people like you mentioned like your parents didn't do it like you were the first one so like for people who don't have anybody yeah. like where should they go to look to even start to find people who are in the industry i
1: mean the great thing about Today's time versus when I started was that the internet's actually around. Yeah. So like you can go online, you can Google, you know, the local if you want to be a grip specifically, you can Google local grip union mm. New Hampshire. Yeah. Right. And you go online and you'll find inevitably you'll find IATSE. It's always IATSE, the International Alliance of Stage and Theater Tech era employees, IATSE. <laughs> um, there's always it's always an IATSE union so look for your local IATSE union that represents grips you can find it online very easily for any state or you can go to the the film commission's website for your local state and you can find it from there or you can call the film commission yeah and you know go on their website and usually on their website they have a list of like what you have to do in order to work as a grip Mm, so they'll tell you what permits you need what kind of licensing you need And, you know, like what kind of documentation you need. And they'll even give you an email address where you can send all that stuff in order to get on their roster, in order to work as an additional. And And see,
0: but if people don't know this, they don't even know where to go to look for this on a website. When I
1: started, you know, I, I didn't, we didn't have... A website yeah. for IOTC Local 480 and like so when I started I, I had no idea how to get into this mm-hmm. all I knew is that you had a certain number of probationary days that you need to do and you need to have two lo- recommendation letters from union members that were yeah. in your craft in that union specifically And, you know, that's really all I knew. I didn't. And what always confused me is that people would say, like, oh, in order to get into the union, you need to have a certain number of union days, but in order to be on a union film crew, you you have to be union. You're like, so how (laughs) does it work? (laughs) Like, if I'm not union, I can't work on the crew, so I can't get into the union. But if I want to get into the union, I have to be union. So how does that work then? So, I mean, it's it's more clear now is that I figured it out, you know, after – some trial and error but it's 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 called permitting is that Mm. you're a non-union employee working under a union contract and they're permitting you to work under the union contract with the uh guise of that one day you're going to be a union person and the their benefit toward them that they're getting is that as you agreeing to work as a permit you agree to give them you know the percentage of your paycheck Mm -hmm. that that union requires so if it's three and a half percent or four and a half percent That comes out of your check automatically, and that's their incentive to hire you, even though you're a non union employee.
0: Mm, So, once you get
1: a certain number of days, like you can join a union in a lot of different states. New York is different in the sense that your hours don't matter, your number of days don't matter. Like, you have to be during a certain period of time, they'll open up applications. You go in, Mm. and if you have the number of hours and the permits necessary, they'll allow you to put an application in. And then based on their evaluation of your application, then you're invited to test. And it's a three-part test. You have a knot test, which is very simple. They come in and they tell you to tie five different knots. The five knots that you need to know is of grip. And if you pass that, then they invite you back for the second part, which is a written test, which is 100 questions covering every detail of the grip. Department that you can think of sizes, working load limits, names, you know, the amount of light something cuts wow. and the amount of light that something bounces. I had
0: no idea you guys had a test.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so you have to take that. And then if you pass the second part of the test, then you come in for your third part of your test, which is the practical, which they put you in a studio with a bunch of equipment. And the guy who is administering the test says, Build me this. Yeah. And you have to go and build it. And if you don't build it correctly, they can fail you on that particular thing. And then based on how you do in the practical, and the other two tests, then they evaluate whether you're worthy of getting a union card. Wow! And back in the day, it used to just be vote based. That like if you if you worked with enough people and you mm-hmm. had a rapport with enough people, they would vote you in simply based on your name and their relationship with you. But not you. now. But that dealt toward nepotism because yeah. a lot of people were like, "Oh, my cousin's not yeah. doing anything. I'm gonna you know hire my cousin," and then their cousin vote would get in. a union card. So you know that that changed just recently. Like there was a lawsuit that Local 52 had that. You know, it was discriminatory hiring practices in the union, and so they got shut down. And because of that, we're going through, like, a much more stringent process of vetting people before they get into the union.
0: Wow. (laughs) I had no idea, like, there was all these tests, like... That's insane. Yeah,
1: Well, I mean it, the the big part of it is is that it's I
0: think it's good.
1: It's great because I mean yeah, just, just because having... you passed the test doesn't mean you know what you're doing. Yeah. It just means that you remembered things. That's true. But we all know
0: that from testing. We just memorize it really. Yeah, quickly. you memorize we all know it, that. And
1: now all of a sudden you have a card. But mm-hmm. you know, the, the real thing about it is is your is your personality and your ability to work with yeah. other people. Literally, I told somebody this the other day, literally ninety percent of my job is just dealing with other people's personalities mm-hmm. learning how to talk to people learning how certain people work and what certain people do and how they do it yeah. so that way I know how to approach them if I'm going to ask them to do something for me or you know what they need from me yeah and how to do that in a professional and courteous and like Friendly manner that's genuine, yeah. Otherwise, they could probably feel that I'm fake and be like, Oh, because we like know, this guy. like, we can
0: feel it when somebody is fake, like, yeah, I, th- I think we all can tell. Like, we know that phony person at work who's like, Ah, they're just smiling in my face, but they don't actually really mean it, yeah.
1: So. But I mean, going back to our previous conversation before the you started recording, was that. You know, like, I I love working in New York, mm-hmm. like, I've worked in New Mexico, which is my home state, you know, I worked on, you know, Albuquerque, I worked on Breaking Bad, I worked yeah. on In Plain side, I worked Super on cool. Terminator Salvation, I worked on The Avengers, I worked on a lot of cool stuff when I was there. Awesome. And then I got sick of New Mexico because I'd been living there my you entire You wanted to life. try something. And I tried LA, and you know, like, I didn't like my experience in LA, you know, it was a very negative experience for me in a lot of ways. And so I moved to New York in order to try a city that I've never lived in, that I've always wanted to live in, and a film industry that I've always wanted to work in. And it's been really rewarding. Like, every single year that I'm here, the more rewarding it gets. And I think that that's the way of the universe, like, telling me that I'm moving in the right, right direction. Right direction. Because, you know, like, my experiences are becoming more and more positive. Yeah. You know, and the work is getting a lot closer together. And that's, like, the craziest thing about being in a union is that, You need to be prepared when the work slows down. Is that Mm. inevitably the tax incentive that the state votes in may not be as lucrative one year to the next. That is true. And films might go to another state. So you need to have the flexibility both in... If you don't want to move out of the state and you don't want to go work in another state, you need to have the ability to plan ahead. Like save your money during that
0: time that you have a lot of work. For when there comes a time when there's no work. Yeah
1: it's uh what's that old phrase uh feast or famine you know mm. the film industry can very much be that way and if you're not willing to move around a lot like it can be feast or famine for yeah. you but like if you're willing to move around the good you news should is be good. a lot of states are like that but you need to be you know prepared for being spending time away from your family yeah. and, you know like I've, which isn't easy yeah you know i've worked in a lot of different states and i've done a lot of different things where, where
0: probably, is your family yeah. base my family is
1: based out of New Mexico Okay So like my, my, my mom and dad and my brother are my immediate family Like I have one sibling and he's my brother He's <laughs> my older brother And uh, they live in My brother lives in Albuquerque with his fiance And my mom and dad live in northern New Mexico In this place called Hamas Springs So they're all there everybody i know is there a lot of my friends is are that where your like wife
0: is too or they no no, she... no my
1: my wife and i we live in brooklyn okay so like we're the only people on the east coast in mm-hmm. my family so we kind of sequestered ourselves in order to sort of sink or swim like discover our yeah. professions because my wife is a school teacher and she needed to like figure out her own way of doing things without yeah. her support system and creating a support system on our own in a new location So like, uh, we live in Brooklyn, and you know we're up in I'm up here in Buffalo doing this job because you know a guy that I really like working with Speedy was was taking us. He was like,
0: "Come on down, Gabe."
1: (laughs) I mean, I I could be in New York right now working on some TV show with somebody that I don't like. That's true. But I'd be home. But for me, it's more important to me to work with people that I really like and people that I respect and people that respect me than you know be close proximity, so to speak.
0: Awesome. All right, Gabe, do you want to give any advice to people who kind of want to get in the industry? Do what you do. Like, what's some advice that you would give them?
1: I mean, the the number one piece of advice that I gave um, one of the most flattering things that ever happened to me is that randomly out of the blue, I got an email from my alumni association from this, mm. the college that I went to, and I studied <laughs> filmmaking when I was in college. And I don't know how they heard about me, but they heard what I had worked on and what I had done. Yeah. So and they would heard about the success. Which of my is a lot film. of
0: cool stuff. <laughs>
1: And they heard about the, the success of my short film, so they wanted me to come back and like talk to the graduating people from oh, the wow. Fine Arts Academy and do the convocation speech. And like, I, it was enormously You've flattered. done so many
0: cool things, Gabe. <laughs> like, what?
1: <laughs> but I was enormously flattered. And like, when I was up there, I was trying to think of like the one thing that You're I like always humble. wanted. The one thing I always wanted someone in the film industry to tell me, like, how do I get into it? How do I do this? and like i just offered it up i was like there's there's a quote i can't remember who said it but it was like it's your responsibility if you make it to send the elevator back down Mm -hmm. and like i always appreciated that because i was just like you know i never had anybody there i had i had to struggle a lot to figure out how to get into this and how to do it and like how to do my job i never had like a mentor so like I offered it up and I offer it up to your listeners if they want to contact me they're more than welcome to contact me it doesn't matter if you want to be a grip or an electrician or an art director or whatever you can contact me and I can put you in contact with someone that can get you started on your path because that's something that I never had I never had that phone call or somebody you know offering that sort of opportunity to me and so that's like really important to me so did you
0: have a lot of people contact you or a decent amount? Uh, yeah,
1: I had a decent amount of people contact me. Like, there was 500 students in the graduating class from the Fine Arts Department at UNM, and, like, of those 500, I think I got, like, 25 emails. Oh, wow. Which is enough that it matters in terms of percentages. Yeah. But like I, I was happy about that because it was like I put I put one kid who wanted to be a visual effects artist in touch with my friend that works at Industrial Light and Magic in San Francisco awesome. because he's like he's a visual artist on like Star Wars yeah you know? like he gets the, like, like
0: that's amazing <laughs>
1: yeah he did like Infinity War and Guardians Holy. of the Galaxy and like he you know and then another friend of mine works for Pixar so I was like. You know, contact these people. Yeah. You know, tell them that you're a friend. Tell them that I'm your friend. Yeah, it's just sort of a fib. But yeah, like, but I referred you, you. Tell them that you know me and that I referred you. And like, luckily, I've been fortunate enough to have as many interpersonal relationships as I've had that, like that means something that mm-hmm. they know me or that I refer to it's
0: them. not like some terrible guy is yeah. like <laughs> referring yeah. them.
1: And like now this kid is like on his way to like figuring out how to intern with industrial light and magic. Wow. And he's like he's really happy about it and I feel bad that he's not gonna get paid for a while. But I'm like, you know, it it sucks yeah, that we're in some, that kind of situation. Yeah. But like that's a huge opportunity and that's something that I'm really happy to do because I love being generous to people mm-hmm. that are hungry and like they want to do this. Because it's, it's a very strange and bizarre industry. Yeah, it's
0: like, like you don't really know how to get in. Yeah, there's I mean, no – it's not like, all right, let me go to school. Then I have to take this test to become a lawyer. Then I got to pass – you know, that, it's like I there's mean, no the, – The
1: good news about this industry is that it's literally I, – I refer to it as the island of, mi- of broken toys or misfit toys. Is that everything that could possibly be in society – painters, sculptors, you know – Technician everything you can construction, do construction, it. it encompasses the film industry. The film industry encompass encompasses literally every other industry.
0: I just said that to Seth. I was like, if you wanna like you like decorating your house, like yeah. now you're doing like or set if you dressing. like cooking. Yeah. You
1: know, like there's catering and there's union positions for caterers Yeah, like there's all sorts of there's a job for everybody in the film industry and if it's something that you really wanna try It's definitely worth pursuing because for me it's very rewarding but it's like it's I've been doing this 10 years and like every year it gets better for me Mm -hmm. and I'm really happy about that because like I feel like it's all it's all starting to click together you know like it took me a long time but it's all starting to click together and I'm like I'm really making positive progress forward but it's something that people should know and it's something that people should definitely pursue is that if they wanna get into this and they wanna try it at the very least, you know, contact me.
0: How can they contact you? What's a you can a good contact
1: detail? me, you can send me an email at Gabe at gmail.com. Which is G A B E dot C H A V as in Victor E Z in Zebra at gmail.com. Or you can call me directly. My phone number is five zero five two six four zero seven eight five.
0: A lot of people don't give their number out, Gabe.
1: No, I know. And, you know, that's the thing is that I I don't have a problem helping people if I can help you. If I'm positioned to help you, I will help you, even if I don't know you.
0: That's like just a a testament to your character and the person that you are.
1: I'm not doing it for, you know, props or anything like that. I'm doing it simply because I believe that this is a very rewarding industry and it's a very fun industry to Mm -hmm. be in. And that I, I want to share that experience with as many people as I can. Because yeah. it is it is something that I love. And it is like a big part of me is like making films and like working on films and yeah. stuff like that. So.
0: so what's next for you? Like, what's any more, next for Yeah, me? like any other short films? <laughs> like
1: cool. I, I wrote a feature film based on the short film that is doing really well. Okay. At Festival. So I wrote a feature version of More Than Words. And like my lead actress that was in the first one, like I have her attached to the project and I have a couple other like actor friends Mm -hmm. of mine that I've met along the years attached to it. But I'm looking for a producer right now because my biggest fear is that this is a very personal autobiographical story about me and like who I am as a person. And so by having something like that, I don't want to take the chance that they're gonna take it out of my hands. So like that's something that I'm looking for is I'm looking for a producer that's gonna allow me to Create a story and create the vision the way that you I want. It. and it's not you know an egotistical thing. It's simply that it is a personal story to me, and that as a filmmaker, I'm gonna I need to establish my identity, and like people need to know who that person is, yeah. and Not be confused that I'm like every other director, and by me being able to do that, I need somebody that's creatively open enough in order to allow me to do mm-hmm. that. And so that's what, that's what I'm working on right now, and I'm working on a short film that I want to direct at the end of the year. That is also going to star the girl that starred in my More Than Words film. So how do you like arrange this,
0: like your own separate projects, but then also like being a grip on other? Yeah, films. it's it's
1: really a balancing act. It's like because it's it's very easy with working, you know, sixty to eight eighty hours a week yeah. as a grip, like to let all that kind of fall by the wayside and only concentrate on being a grip but like uh that that's sort of like my day job while I'm good at it and I love to do it like that's my day job but like my passion is is I want to be a filmmaker mm-hmm. and like that's something that's very personal to me and I enjoy doing that like I'm never at my best more than when I'm directing yeah and it's something that I get to dump all my love and all my energy into and so in terms of that it's just I I need to I You have to do it. I just have to do it. That's the thing, is that the first short film I ever made was literally picking up a camera that I had and, like, going out in the woods and shooting something with my
0: friends. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that you said, like, that's what we did. We just, it was just me and my friends and a camera, and you said it was a shitty camera at that, but we just did it.
1: Yeah, but we did it, and, like, we learned every film that we made after that, we learned what we were doing wrong. And, like, by watching movies and reading scripts, I sort of understood, like how things translated to the screen and I use that in order to create my next project. So, you know, I, I, the way I work as a filmmaker is I always see one image in my mind and mm-hmm. it's like it's a dream or something I saw on the street and it sticks in my mind. And I write a scene around that yeah. image and then like another scene inevitably develops in my brain that connects to that scene. And then I start seeing the overall picture and then I flesh it out into a story. But, like, every short film that I ever made, I could literally show you what image popped into my head, and I'd be like, that's the image that made wow. this short.
0: So it's just from one image that you kind of yeah, create this whole like story? I,
1: I made a, I made a short film called A Clear Midnight that I shot back in New Mexico when I lived in LA, but, like, the image that I had popping into my head was I was actually, I had a dream, and I was in that, like, semi-lucid state when I'm falling asleep. Mm-hmm. I had this dream, and the image was was this this girl inside of a gas station and, like, she wanted to kill herself. And, like, I just had this image of, like, this guy outside of the gas station mm-hmm. that can't help her for some reason. And I wanted to know what that reason was. Like, yeah. he, his empathy and his sense of compassion toward this person who he didn't know went out to her, but he couldn't help her. And I wanted to know what that story was. And so, like, that's, that's where that one started. Or this last short film, it started with an argument, actually, is that there was a, since it's autobiographical, <laughs> yeah. autobiographical, like, my wife and I, when we were just started dating, and we had just moved in together, we had an argument based on my health, the way I was taking care of myself,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, like, that argument stuck so strongly in my mind that, like, I always wanted to, like, dramatize that, in a way, yeah. because it was such a formative experience for me as a person, that, like, that was the leading element that created the short film More Than Words
0: which is now going to be a feature film
1: which is shortly going to be a feature film mm-hmm. so um yeah and you know like the 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 image of the burned trees that i talked about earlier when we did beast of bird and like the image of the burned trees made me want to make richard corliss's novel into yeah. a film and so like that got me started on that was the image of a burned a burned oak tree So like every single movie that I've ever made, there's an image in it where I'm like, that's the image that either popped into my head or I saw in real life that you know allowed me. How
0: many short films have you done? I've done
1: thirty-four short films. Wow. 34 short like films
0: where, I, do you have a website like where can we <laughs> yeah I have get a website a list and... I, I
1: don't like giving out the website because admittedly I've been very lax on maintaining on the, it mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's
0: outdated a little <laughs>
1: yeah. bit but it's if you want to see my work or a couple of short films that I've made it's uh, ffpfilms.com
0: ffpfilms.com yeah. okay
1: it's, it's short for frozen frame productions films.com because I used to have frozen frame yeah. and that was way too long to put on a business card So, ffpfilms.com. You can go there. You can see... I think I have three short films up there that you can see. And you can see a longer reel, which is like a 30-minute reel that I did. Where are all the other ones? All the other ones are... Sitting around.
0: <laughs> well, get, come on. Actually,
1: it, to be fair, they're on DVD and Blu-ray. Like I created. A you bunch gotta of DVDs put them somewhere Blu-rays. so that
0: people can see them. Yeah, you no. just like you make you create these things and then you like hold it hostage.
1: Yeah, I mean the the thing about it was is that when I was really discovering my identity as a filmmaker, there were only certain films that I felt spoke to that. Yeah. So like the other films are more for less of a better word, an experiment. You know, there was something that I wanted to experiment with the way that I'm telling something Mm -hmm. or, you know, a particular scene that I hadn't tackled before. Like, the first film that I ever made that was, like, an argument, like, because I hadn't done, like, a real argument, like, a passionate argument between two people about a seemingly innocuous thing. Like, I wrote a script for my freshman year in college that was called Three. And it was this short film that I always wanted to direct and, like, it had a very like, disturbing argument that happens between a husband and a wife in a in a kitchen. But mm-hmm. it's just the two of them, and it's arguing for eight and a half minutes. But I never knew how to do that. Yeah. So, like, at, as I was trying to develop myself as a filmmaker, I was like, you know what? I think it's time for me to try to develop that and try to make that. And I made it It's, that. like, practicing? Yeah, it's practice. So when I say 34 short films, it could be anywhere from three minutes to, you know, 15 mm-hmm. minutes. But each one of them is an experiment. But of the short films that I've made, the three or four that are online... Those are the ones that I feel are fully fleshed out, it's not an experiment, it's an actual story, it's an actual short film.
0: So. Which I get a little bit why you're, like, the other one to kind of just have and you hold those hostage, yeah. yeah. <laughs> why they're not just out somewhere. I mean, one,
1: one day they'll be out there and people okay. can see them, but I I want people to see the identity of me as a filmmaker first, and yeah. then they can go back and they can see this and see, oh, you know, this, is, this looks like where he mm-hmm. got this idea in order to do this scene or this is where he was developing this skill, you know. And,
0: so do you want to make that transition, <laughs> like, where you become like a full-time director yeah
1: ultimately that's what I'd like to do is that my the person that I idolize the most is Steven Soderbergh okay and Steven Soderbergh I idolize him because he's one he's a good director and like not everything that he's made is completely successful in terms Mm -hmm. of its ability to connect with the audience but he he's an experimenter he always tries to challenge himself with something that he hasn't done before and that's what I really appreciated about him. His last movie, Unsane, was shot on an iPhone and like nobody knew that he was making that movie because he never announced it. Yeah. And then like out of nowhere a trailer drops and he's like, Oh, this is my new movie and you know, he shot it on an iPhone, iPhone. in upstate New York like two years ago and like nobody knew that he was doing that. But I idolize him because he, he writes, he directs He edits and he shoots pretty much everything that he's ever done. Like even though people are credited as a writer and he's not really credited as a writer a lot, he always has a very specific way that he doctors his scripts in order to fit in with what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. So he's very hands on with the script. He doesn't just pick it up and start making it. But he, you know, a lot of people don't know. Like his films are always shot by a man named Peter Andrews. Peter Andrews is Steven Soderbergh. It's just a alias name for him. <laughs> and it's edited by a woman named Marianne Bernard. Is that him? That's him. Like he. Why he does he do that? Because he doesn't like having his name so many times in the credits. He just wants to be known as a director. Yeah. But He has this other, this entire other skill set that he uses in order to create his stories. But he doesn't want people to know that it's him necessarily. Yeah. Because he wants people to concentrate on the movie and not how many times his names are in the credits. Because that's, in a way, it's almost egotistical. Yeah,
0: like, oh, I've done everything. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's that's the thing that I have a problem with Robert Rodriguez, is that Robert Rodriguez has his name, like, six times in the credits. And I'm like, I get it, Robert. You do everything. Yeah. But, you know... But we don't need to. I don't need to see your name on a title card six times. Yeah. Like, I just, I know who you are. I know what you do, so... Wow. But yeah, that's that's who I idolize the most is Steven Soderbergh because he works in the independent system. He does these little one point five million dollar movies, even though he's done Ocean's Eleven, which is you know an eighty million dollar yeah. like blockbuster movie. He can alternate between the two of them, and he does it so effortlessly. And he changes his style every single time that he works. That that he's always advancing
0: and like it yeah. seems kind of like experimenting.
1: Yeah, that's that's ultimately what I'd like to do with my career. Is I'd like to be in a position where I can do that. It's not it's not in my interest to make the next batman movie i Mm -hmm. never want to make the next batman Mm -hmm. movie i don't care about that it's not that it's not a good story or anything like that but i don't want to make a 200 million dollar movie like i've worked on a 200 million dollar movie and it's an exhausting experience what movie was that uh well two 200 million dollar movies it was terminator salvation and the avengers okay so both of those movies were exhausting to work on because there's so much work that needs to be done in order to make a superhero flick or an action movie that like you you get to the end of it and it's a really long experience. It's not a six-week shoot. It's a nine-month shoot. Yeah. And you get to the end of it and you're like, I'm, um, uh, I'm going to take three months off Yes. Yeah. it took everything out of you in yeah. order to make it. And I don't, I don't want to ever put people in that position, so I don't want to be that guy to make the $200 million movie. Yeah. but. I mean, I always said that if I ever went crazy and I had a bunch of money, what I would do is I would do a $200 million version of Dante's Inferno and I would make it as violent and like as disturbing as when I read the book because that that book greatly shaped who I was when I read it because of the way that I viewed, you know, spirituality and what yeah. I believed about you know, God and everything like that. That if I ever lost my mind and wanted to do something like that, you it would, would be do it based on that.
0: <laughs> like if I lost my mind and I was going to do $200 million, <laughs> it would be that.
1: But, you know, I mean, beyond that, I never, I always want to work in that 20 to $60 million okay. mid budget movie range because that's, that's something that's rapidly diminishing in today's day and age is that everybody believes that, you know, the next big tent pole is the way to go because you can make a billion dollars off of one movie. Yeah. And everybody's searching for that idea. But the problem is, is that when you're pushing it out there so often every summer you need that billion dollar movie that you get tons of sequels because you can't come up with a brand new idea unless you're That's than true. Years. Like it's we're gonna do part two, dollars. part three. Yeah, and then there's the prequels and the offshoots and like and you know they're Nothing starting. Original realize, anymore. Well, they're starting to realize that there's like a franchise, like um, there's franchise jaws exhaust, exhaustion that people don't want to see a uh, eight Hunger Games movies. Yeah. That that movie's already played out. Like you know, go and do something else. Yeah. And but the the studio system has gotten to the point where they just want to do these two hundred million dollar movies. It's either the one million dollar horror movie that makes fifty million dollars because everybody loves it Love and it's it. gory and whatever, or there's the two hundred million dollar like so horror they can make a billion. Movie, so that way they can make a billion dollars. But, like, the mid-budget movies are diminishing. And it's a shame because so many great movies are in that mid-budget Middle. range. If you look at all the greatest, like, mid-budget movies ever, The Shawshank Redemption was a $40 million mm. movie. You know, The Green Mile, I don't mean to bring up Frank Darabont twice, but The Green Mile was a $40 million movie. And, like, you know, it, it it's, it's this whole diminishing system of, you know, mid-budget movies that really are where the ticket is in Hollywood. Like just because you make a 40 million dollar movie and it only makes 150 doesn't mean that it That failed. it was a,
0: yeah it doesn't mean it was a bad movie. But if
1: you make 10 40 million dollar movies a year and they all make 150 or they all make 100 million dollars that's your billion dollars. You yeah. made your billion dollars for the year, but you didn't have so much exposure because mm. you know oh Let's make John Carter from Mars. Let's put yeah. $250 million into an idea that hasn't been around since the 1950s and yeah. hope people latch onto it because Avatar came out the year before and, oh, it's in 3D and it's got space aliens yeah. and nobody cares and nobody sees it. They don't Now care you're on the hook for a mil- or, you know, $600 million that you spent on this one idea and it didn't make it back. Mm. Like if you spend $20 million on one idea and you make a really good movie and people respond to it, You'll get the big box office, yeah. you know.
0: Like um, like going back to when you were talking about like minorities and stuff in film. Um, I used to watch, you know, like Love and Basketball, those kind yeah. of movies, and. I would hear a lot of actors like Taraji P. Henson, they would speak out Mm -hmm. and say like our movies, like say we only spent like 10, 20 million dollars, but they might make 100 or 150. Like the amount of money we spent to make this film and the amount of money we made back on it is like a big investment. Like that movie did really well, but like maybe the higher ups don't look at it that way. That yeah. that movie did well though. Like yeah, the amount no, of money I mean, it it's, cost. It's,
1: it's, I think that it, I think it's being proven more and more every year and unfortunately it's being proven with the horror genre. But like that you can make a twenty million dollar movie and make two hundred million off. Yeah.
0: Movie, like, like just because like, it doesn't make a billion, like that
1: well, like, Get Out, right? Yeah. Like, Get Out is oh, one of yeah. the most critically acclaimed movies of that year. And, like, it was, was so, so successful because it was a $25 million movie. It was a $25 million movie, so the exposure to the studio wasn't very far. Mm-hmm. And as it started gaining the word of mouth because it's a good movie that you know it started getting yeah. the repeat box office and that's how it made all of it's money that it did is because it's a good movie and that it had a small exposure if they made Get Out for 250 million dollars and they put all the visual effects in it they possibly could
0: I don't think it would be the same movie it wouldn't
1: be the same movie number one but it also wouldn't have made as much money as it did mm-hmm. the, the profit value would be significantly less yeah. because you know Get Out isn't a billion dollar idea you mm-hmm. know it, like it is a great movie but it's not gonna make a billion dollars Yeah, but you know what it's gonna make three hundred million mm-hmm. Which is a lot of money. A lot of
0: money <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot. So
1: that's that's like the short sighted thing in the studio system that like I really think needs to change. And like the mid budget movies were always the movies that I enjoyed making the most. Yeah. Like when I worked on mid-budget flicks, those were always my favorites to work on because my wage was like it was a major. Mm-hmm. So I got paid my full rate. I never felt like I was getting cheated. And like, you know, ultimately the product came out good and it ended up making some money, mm-hmm. and, which means that the producer who may have hired me would be like, oh, Gabe, okay, you know, I'm making another one, you know, let's yeah, go do this, like, so. and that means that I one. get more, you know, more time and more yeah. money and more jobs. But, like, if they keep making these $200 million movies, they're not going to hire me for a $200 million movie to key it. Like, yeah. they're going to hire Ray Garcia, or they're going to hire, you know, Mitch Lillian, which they're great guys that worked with both of them, but, like, they're going to get those jobs because those are the jobs they do. Yeah. You know, and, like, but... To have those two guys play all the time while the rest of us are like, oh, you know, I I guess I'll take this five billion dollar movie and get paid like less than I normally would.
0: Who are those two guys? Are they?
1: Mitch Lillian is a fan. He's he's basically the Tom Cruise of Key Grips. Okay. Like if you if you go and you Google him, like you'll pull up his resume and you'll see that he his main cinematographer that he works with is Roger Deakins. And he's done everything that Roger Deakins has been doing for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So all the Coen Coen Brothers movies, he did Blade Runner, which, you know, won the Cinematography Award last year. Um, You know, like, Mitch is a a big dude. And, like, uh, but the thing about Mitch is that he's a super sweet guy, and you wouldn't know it when you meet him. He's, like... He's so chill, and, like, you know, I love Mitch. I really do. And Ray Garcia is a big West Coast key grip. He's done all of Christopher Nolan's movies. Oh, So, wow. like, he did The Dark Knight. He did Interstellar. Yeah. Like, he's, he's a big dude. But, like, those are big movies, and that's what those guys thrive on is big movies yeah. like that. But, you know, again, going back to it, even on this side of the industry as a grip, I don't want to do a two hundred million dollar yeah, movie. Yeah, you know? it's like, not a thing. The forty million dollar movies are great. It's a manageable amount of work. I still feel rewarded. I don't feel like I'm beat up when I go home.
0: After you're not like oh I can't work for another <laughs> like you know you're not like all right no work yeah, for about three I four never, months.
1: I mean every there are frustrations obviously with every movie, but like I never on the forty million dollar movies I never. Got to that point where I was just like so frustrated that I felt mentally and physically exhausted. exhausted. And that's what happens on those $200 million movies. It's just, it's it so takes everything out of it you. It takes everything out of you that like you really hope that it does well. Like, yeah. You're like it better. It's like, you know, they made a movie in New Mexico called Cowboys and Aliens that was a $180 million movie. And like it was, you know, Harrison Ford and Daniel Craig. How and did like, it we do? got Indiana Jones and we got James Bond. Like, how, how could we not make a billion dollars off of this idea? And it failed. Yeah. I'm,
0: I've, <laughs> I haven't heard of it. That doesn't mean anything, but...
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bizarre experience. It's literally, Cowboys and Aliens. Like it's, it's everything that you think it is just by that title, but it's, it's really entertaining. Like yeah. You should check it out. But it's, uh, it's not like a good movie. Okay. It's not but like it's a just funny. And, it's, and it's fun to watch, you know, and that's, that's exactly what it is. It's a forgettable, watchable movie. That mm-hmm. they should you know, not have I'm, spent
0: that much money on. It.
1: I've seen it once. I'm probably never going to see it again in my life. And hmm. that's the thing is that if you talk about long-term cash value, I never bought the Blu-ray, which I'm the kind of guy that I buy the Blu-ray. Yeah. And then when they come out with a special edition they of a movie that it. I really like, I buy that too. And they get the double dipping off of me all the time. And I'm on like, this one, not at all. No, on this one, not at all. And that's <laughs> the thing is that it's a $200 million movie or $180 million movie that they dumped all this cash in that didn't have a good story. And like me being a cinephile, and I watch everything I possibly can, mm-hmm. I'll never see it again because it's not a good movie. But, wow! You know, that's that's what the studio system needs to change. Is that they could have made Cowboys and Aliens for forty million dollars? I know they could have.
0: Yeah, it's they like went, you you telling me that it <laughs> needed to be a hundred and eighty million dollar yeah, film.
1: Uh, it it always blows my mind whenever I see inflated budgets like the last uh the last james bond movie cost 310 million dollars to make i'm like why Why? like quantum of solace was made in 2006 which was only 12 years ago and that was made for 125 million are you really telling me that you almost tripled the cost of production in 12 years and it's just the idea of like making a bigger movie and like more expensive visual effects and more yeah. expensive stunts and like a grander spectacle but they're not concentrating on the story story yeah and it's like you know, it might
0: look cooler but the story yeah. itself isn't any when better. i was in
1: film school they said you know there's two things in stories there's there's story and there's plot plot devices are interchangeable like a plot is just oh we can put this here we can put this here yeah a story is something that you can't change so, like, if you, if you want to make it that way, stop focusing on plot, oh, the big set piece, the big this, mm. the big that. Focus on the story. Because the story is what keeps people hooked and, like, makes them want to come back and see it again. Yeah. Like, it's not just, oh, there's a really cool robot in it. like like, that's uh, nice am i gonna go and i'm gonna spend you know in new york city i gotta pay 22 dollars for a movie ticket am i gonna go and spend 22 (laughs) because i want to see the robot just to see the robot again probably not no like i'll wait until it comes out on video on demand and i'll watch or on hbo and i'll watch it maybe once more and be like oh yeah it's a robot and you know go on to something else but not but you know i'm not gonna buy it i'm not gonna watch Mm -hmm. it you know 10 times in my life i'm gonna see it once maybe twice and And that's it that's it, you know, it's it's the it's the idea of like the readily uh reusable or like destroyable product. Like you see it, you use it once and, and then throw it, away, throw it away. You know? And that's that's what these movies are in a lot of ways, is that they're interchangeable. And they don't really mean anything. Yeah, they don't mean anything. I mean I, I saw Thor the Dark World in theaters and because I liked the first Thor movie. And I honestly couldn't tell you what it was about. The second one? Because I saw it, and it was so forgettable that, like, even though that was only, like, maybe five or six years ago, I cannot tell you a single scene in that movie, even though I saw it. (laughs) Because it's so interchangeable. Like, there's, there's nothing in it that really grabbed me. And, you know, that's the unfortunate thing, is that every movie... That ever made a huge impression on me is inevitably something that's in that mid-budget range, and yeah. that's really what you know made me want to be in that range. Mm-hmm. It was like there's enough freedom in here that I can see people doing something really original, yeah. and it's you not so low budget that means like, something more. Yeah, it's it's like they they have enough money to like do what they want. Like, um, I just saw last night. I saw uh, Sorry to Bother You. And, like, that's that's a movie released by Annapurna Pictures, and Annapurna is... I've heard by, about it. Yeah, Megan Ellison runs that company, and, like, her dad is, like, a multi-billionaire, like, and he just, he ended up giving his daughter and his son, like, a, a few billion dollars each and said, go do whatever you want, and, and she... Megan decided to start a film studio. But, like, Megan's idea was that she wanted to give money to people that had that idea, the, it, you know, and they're usually established directors, but they had that idea that's really weird, but nobody would finance this picture because they can't mm. see it being a $200 million movie. But she She's would. like, you know what? Go make it, you know, because it's something special. Go check it out. And her first year that she released movies, which was in 2012 she got something like 18 Oscar nominations between all the movies that she put out. Wow. And she had three Best Picture nominees. And I'm like, that's her first year as a producer. She's doing this because like, she, had, she could see that somebody had an idea, but they were restricted by the studio system, which was, oh, it needs to make $200 million. Let's change this to this, this to this. And, and they you know, change your the story. They change your story, and then it comes off as being, you know, derivative of everything else. So, but, you know, I saw sorry to bother you last night and like that movie is so bizarre like but it it seemed like boots riley of uh what's what's the name of the band that he used to be a part of uh the coup yeah boots riley of the Mm. coup like it's his first time directing he's never directed a movie before but like he's an artist he's been around and like his his was it cool it was cool. It, it ended up in a place that I had no idea it was going to end up. And, like, when it got there, I remember I was sitting there, I was like, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> but I was intrigued by it. I, I saw like, an
0: interview with Charlamagne the God that said the same thing. Do you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. So he was saying the same thing, like, I don't know what I just watched. Like, what was that? <laughs> like, he couldn't even explain it either. I know?
1: couldn't explain it. I just I just ran into our, uh, our A camera first AC, Corey, mm-hmm. at the movie theater when I went to go see this movie, Leave No Trace. And I was like, oh, last night I saw this movie. Have you seen it? And he's like, yeah, I saw it. I was like, we we got to talk. I got to talk yeah. to somebody who's seen it because I, I I don't know how to, like, decompress from mm-hmm. it. It's, it's such a bizarre I'd have to film. watch it now. It's such a bizarre film and it examines, like, an African-American's, like, place in American society. Mm-hmm. But it does it in such a way that it's, like... I, I really don't know how to explain it. <laughs> I saw it and I was just I was so shocked by it. I was just like, this is this is so weird. Yeah, like, but I loved it. I thought it I thought it was really interesting. And I thought I liked seeing these original ideas of shit that I've never seen before on screen. And That's like the power of filmmaking. Yeah, like and that. examining that the African-American diaspora from a different lens. Like I really liked that. Cool. And that's the thing is that I the the main reason that I stay in film is that I believe that filmmaking is one of the art forms that can change people's lives. Like, I can point to several movies in my life that it changed my mind in my life about how I was thinking about certain issues. Like what films? Well, like you know when I was when I was growing up, and I don't mean to denigrate my parents at all, but like when I was growing up, I grew up in a very strict like Christian conservative home, mm-hmm. very, very right wing conservative, and like growing up in a religious community i had the the opinion that a lot of religious leaders and communities do that homosexuality is a sin and i remember that i saw midnight cowboy when i was 14 mm-hmm. 13 14 and, like, I, I remember attaching so much to Dustin Hoffman's character in that movie that when what happens to him happens in the movie, like, it broke my heart. And I remember thinking to myself, I was very conflicted that, like, I could have this feeling about a fictional character, yeah. even though it's based on a true story, but, like, a fictional character that was, his lifestyle was something that I was taught was wrong. And, like, as I started getting older and I was watching more and more movies, and then my brother ended up coming out to me when he was 15 or 16, and I was 14, something like that. But, like, I remember when my brother came out to me that, like, it was really hard for me, too, because I was just being exposed to this, and I had no idea, like, how to react or anything like that, and then... As I started watching more and more movies and, like, talking to people about things that I had watched and, like, you know, my brother and mm-hmm. stuff like that and how to, like, f- sort of gel this, like, fictional how world into like, of the real-life world. Like, that that really opened up my mind in a very positive way. And I can, like, very confidently say that Yeah, I mean, Midnight Cowboy is kind of a very controversial movie even to today, but, like, it it very much shaped what I thought. It made me start thinking about it, and Mm -hmm. it made me start evaluating my own opinion and my own way of, like, dealing with people and why I was treating people that way.
0: Yeah.
1: And that was, like, that was a very, like, formative film for me in that way. And then American History X greatly shaped me in a lot of ways, too, because watching that, you know, like, I was exposed to it made me look at myself in the way that i was i was forwarding a lot of these like racial microaggressions that were taught to me as being an american citizen there's like this undercurrent of racism that's in everything that's out there and i would you know i would tell you know like a racist joke when i was younger or whatever but it made me reevaluate why i was doing that and like how i perceived myself as a hispanic male and Mm -hmm. like what it meant to be a Latino in America and even what, you know, my African-American friends are going through and, like, anything that I may have, like, said that may have been offensive to them. And it made Were you me making evaluate. jokes about
0: your culture or other people? My culture
1: and other people. Yeah. I didn't see a distinction. I just I thought it was a funny joke and, like, I would just say the joke and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even think of why I was saying the joke mm-hmm. or why it was funny. And then as I started stepping back and realizing, you know what, it's not funny what I'm saying. The reason why people get a laugh out of it is because it's sick and people are laughing at it because it's sick and like that's something that you know it made me change my perspective on the way that i was treating other people and the jokes that i was telling that movie made a great impression on me and then american beauty made me reevaluate how i viewed death because like my uncle died two years after that movie came out and like the what i really took from that and watching that creator's tv show six feet under like, that really greatly helped me, like, process my mm-hmm. uncle's death and, like, not having him around and what that means to die and, like, so a, a lot of, a lot of movies that I'd seen over the years had, like, greatly shaped me as a human being yeah. and, like, what I believed and then especially when it comes to geopolitical stuff, you know, like, everything from The Third Man to The Manchurian Candidate to, you know, oh, I love that movie. Any, anything that you can think of in between, like, those movies shaped how I thought about politics. Yeah. Or like the American justice system with, you know, 12 Angry Men or To Kill a Mockingbird. Like that that shaped me as well. And like as I started watching more and more movies, I realized how many of them are applicable to how powerful they are. And when I started considering like the overall film history of it all, like where these statements came from, what was happening in that culture when this statement was made. Like how that translated directly to the screen or things that were quite literal in the film that were like either poking fun or trying to expose a problem with society that was happening at the time of the making of the movie the you know that that sort of shaped me and that film has something to say like film in the right hands I can't remember who said that actually I should know this from college but film in the right hands is a weapon and it's a weapon of truth yeah. is that when you look at something you can expose it for what it is and you can tell it how it is mm-hmm. and that's that's really why I stay in this industry, industry. because of that like the reason I signed on the Wolf Boy wasn't just because of Chris. Is because I liked the script. I liked what it had to say about transgender identity. Yeah, and that's why I stuck with it. Is I was just like, you know, I, I could be back in New York and I could be doing, Bull. I could be working on Bull again. but yeah. like, Bull doesn't have anything to say. Like it's just a TV doesn't show have any real meaning. Think. Yeah, it's just a TV show to for people to watch on a Monday night. You know but like that I felt like wolf boy I still feel like wolf boy is something that could be very special and it could speak a lot to a lot of different people most especially kids with transgender identity yeah. issues and that's important like seeing the exposure and seeing the yourself in the screen so yeah. to speak and that's something that I think that film does almost more than I think other. recently
0: you've seen more films, um, cast people, or tell stories. Um, I think of people who have kind of had their their stories not shown like in the spotlight, whether it's more minorities or gays or transgenders, like we've seen more of those stories come to light, whereas in the past, you you don't see it at all. Like people can look and identify themselves in that.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, a movie that I really latched onto the year that it came out was uh, Moonlight and Moonlight oh, I latched was, onto yeah. because the reason I saw Moonlight was because Mahershala Ali mm-hmm. is in it and I'm a huge Mahershala Ali fan like he's a super nice guy I met him when I worked on Luke Cage season one he's the nicest guy in the world and like when I met him and I saw like more of his work I was like I've always been a fan, but after I met him, I wanted to see everything that he had. Yeah. And as I started working through and then I heard about Moonlight, like, I went and I saw Moonlight, and I thought it was a very important movie because it doesn't just... It's not just another gay love story. Like, it talks about uh, homosexual identity as a person of color, and especially in the black community and as well as the Latino community, it's viewed as, like... You're less of a man. man and it's not just like, oh, it's weird, it's sick, whatever. Like it's it's literally that you are mm-hmm. not a man. Yeah. Because you were identifying as a homosexual. And I thought that, that was really important to show that and I that's why I loved that movie. But like that that movie really latched to me when I saw it that year. Yeah, I like that movie too. And me, then it was last so good. year last year it was um Call Me by Your Name. Call Me by Your Name was like it was have such, such an important that? You have to see that movie. The reason you have to see that movie is that it's a, it's a, it's a homosexual love story, right? Mm-hmm. But the reason why it's different than every other one is that it's not predicated upon tragedy. Okay. Like, every homosexual love story that's on the screen has some sort of tragedy. Yeah. Somebody gets AIDS, somebody's parents don't accept them, somebody gets killed because they're gay. Something. And, you know, it's, those are stories that need to be told because it happens every day. But this movie was examining the other side of it, which was that the tragedy in the relationship is, is that the two people can't be together at that time. And like it's 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 universal in that sense because even though it's two men that you're seeing on screen, and you may identify as a heterosexual. You can see this love between them, and you can identify the a similar story that you may have gone through with yeah. somebody that you would once fell in love with but couldn't be, be at the time. Yeah, and it be those race kinds of movies are family. important because they bridge gaps. You know, it's something that even though it may be foreign to you like, you can identify with.
0: In some kind of way, you can look at it and watch it and find something out of it that you can identify yeah. with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I when I really started, like, talking to my brother about his own sexual identity and, like, what that meant for me, having grown up the way that I did, and, like, I started sort of expanding my mind and thinking about it, I really thought about it, and it sort of clicked one day, is that I don't need to understand someone's struggle in order to empathize with Yeah. It. Like, I don't need to be in my brother's situation in order for you to be... To empathize to be empathetic. what my brother's going through. And that was something that like really impacted me was that I realized that if there was gonna be any sort of a bridge between my parents and my brother, being that my parents are like very strict Christian conservative and they would have just viewed him as a sinner, that it would have Did to be. Do they still me. not accept it? They are more open to accepting it mm-hmm. as they were before, but like every year it gets a little bit better with them. And like it was it was really because I had to stick up with my brother, is that In in December of 2010, my brother like officially came out to my parents and like my mom and dad freaked out and they emailed me and my brother and they were upset and they wanted to have a family meeting and they were upset with me because they just moved in with my girlfriend, now my wife and that was something that also was like very taboo in their opinion. So they wanted to have a family meeting, and I could see where their perspective was, is that they were, like, losing their kids, like, to, you know, the worldly Because things of their ideas
0: of what they thought it should be yeah. like.
1: Yeah, and so, like, I could see where my parents are coming from, but I told my parents, I said, you know, I'm not going to show up to the meeting, and neither is Michael, because I don't want to sit there for two hours and listen to you rail against Michael for his sexual identity. Yeah. It's like, this has nothing to do with you. Like, it's literally Michael's thing. Like, you don't, my my, you know people that are gay aren't asking you to come into their bedroom and understand the mechanics of how they do what they do and what it feels like to be Mm -hmm. gay. Like, they're just asking for your empathy. Like, leave them alone. You know, as a straight person, people don't go into your bedroom and be like, (laughs) you need to show me how this is happening because I don't agree with it. Agree with it. Like, it's not, it's not, that's not, you don't need to understand their struggle in order to be empathetic toward it. And, like, as I started, like, growing in that way, now I really, I don't understand my brother's struggle in that sense because I'm not a homosexual man, But I'm much more empathetic towards it. And like, I defend everybody that I possibly can against that because I'm just like, your sexual identity as a person is the most personal thing to you. Like, if you cannot be who you are as a sexual person, Mm and when you're at your most vulnerable and your most passionate, your most genuine, like, they're denying who you are as a human being. Like, that's your spiritual identity. And in my opinion, that's your spiritual identity. That's who you are Mm -hmm. as your most basic person. And like to deny somebody that simply because I don't understand, understand it, it or I don't, I don't, I don't agree have with that it compunction, Like that doesn't make any sense to me. like yeah. that's that's why I am the way that I am with Defending people that are LGBTQ is it's just like I don't understand it because I'll never be in that situation But I can sure as shit empathize for yeah. what's happening But movies did that for me like movies yeah. helped me expand my mind and helped me expand to these other ideas that I never would have been exposed to because I grew up in a sheltered lifestyle, you know, short of my brother being gay and me being in that, in that sense, like everything else was a sheltered lifestyle. So I think movies can change people's lives and that's why I do what I do.
0: Wow. Man, Gabe. (laughs) Thank you. Like, honestly, like... I can't remember who it was. Oh, was it? Kat? It was somebody that was like, "Yeah, you got to talk to Gabe." They were like, "It is gonna be great," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, it's gonna be great." Like, yeah, because Gabe's worked on movies, but like, it's been great in a way that I, you know, that I didn't think it was gonna be great. Like, it just went a whole other direction, and I'm so thankful that, like, I got to talk to you and listen to you. Like, because it wasn't just movies; it was so many other things about life that Thanks I'm like, "Thanks for having me." Yeah, I, I,
1: I always enjoy talking about it because it is so much of. a part of who i of am of who you are like it, film is very much who i am and like chris always makes fun of me for it because i'm a cinephile and like we'll work on something yeah. and i'll be like oh yeah i love this dp you know like he did this movie yeah. whatever like on wolf boy wolf boy when i found out who the dp was when i went on the tech scout mm-hmm. i was like oh chris like i love this guy yeah like, he just <laughs> shot this movie called the ghost story which i don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. that it's brilliant work by Andrew. Like, it really is. It's unbelievably beautiful. But, like, that movie greatly impacted me. Like, it, I had so much of a profound, moving experience watching yeah. that movie. And I literally had seen it in New York two weeks before I came to Boston. Oh, wow. So you were like, and, oh. And so when I met him, I was like, dude, I don't, I don't mean to be a fanboy, but, like, you know, I, I got to mention it. Like, I'm a huge fan. Your work is beautiful. Like, I loved a ghost story. You know, please tell David Lowry, the director, like, how much I love his work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was, like, that was a huge thing for me because I was like, this guy's got a great eye and he was such a personable person and, like, the experience of working with mm-hmm. him was so positive that I wouldn't hesitate, again, yeah. if Andrew called me and said, hey, do you want you and Chris want to go do this job? I wouldn't Some hesitate. people
0: don't care about the movie that they're working on, you know? <laughs> Some people don't, like, at all. Yeah. So, I don't know, but, man, like, thank you so much for just, like, Being a little bit more personal and not just talking about, oh, yeah, GRIP, this is what we do. Like, you know, just talking more about your life and your family. Like, you didn't have to express that. And so I really want to just say thank you for, like, having those moments and sharing that with me. Because, I mean, I know people listening to it will be able to learn from it. They'll take something from it. Um, And... I learned a lot of just about who you are and and the kind of person you are. And I think you're awesome. Even more than just seeing you, like, oh, yeah, Gabe. You know, just like, yeah, Gabe's nice. Like, I've never like yeah, Gabe's rude. But, like, you know, I learned a lot. Not a lot. I don't know you entirely. But I felt like, you know, I got an insight into who you are. I appreciate
1: that. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, of course. Thank you so much. Well, there it is, guys. The season finale with Gabe Chavez man i just want to know what you guys thought about it um to everybody who's listened to all 13 if you came in you only listened to the season finale whether you only listened one episode two episode even if you only seen some of the clips on instagram i just want to give a big thank you to everybody um who's listened who shared who's liked so just thank you guys all so much i really hope you enjoyed this episode i hope you guys enjoyed season one I hope you guys have learned something you know I just really hope that it's giving you guys some more insight into this industry uh, for anybody who's wanted to go on it or just anybody who's curious about it so as always please guys go subscribe to the podcast please rate and write a review those really help if you guys want to write and just let me know what you learned what you thought about it what you guys want me to do for season two, it's really appreciated. So please continue to share the podcast. Please get it out to more people. We will be coming out with a season two. So as always, and again, thank you guys so much. Please subscribe, please rate, and please go write a review. It really means so much. So thank you guys. Here's to season one of Crew Only Podcast
1: i